Hey, what's happening, gang? And welcome to another enlightening episode of Jazztopia. I'm your host, Bobby Spellman. we got a great show for you today. I'm excited to present our guest this week. Uh, beforehand, I'd like to do a little, a little housekeeping, a little uh, reminder of uh, some ways that you can support the music world out there in our... Uh, as we return from the clutches of the coronavirus... Uh, there are two clubs in New York City that you may be familiar with, Shapeshifter Lab in Brooklyn, New York, and the 55 Bar in Greenwich Village. Both of them are looking to uh, make a little money after the uh, coronavirus lockdowns put a little dent in their regular income. So if you got some extra money lying around and you want to support some real serious New York jazz institutions, you can go to the GoFundMe website and you can look for... Help Save Shapeshifter Lab, and uh, also the 55 Bar. You can search for those two establishments. If you've got a little extra money and you want to throw some money down for a good cause, help these guys out, uh, check it out. And next time you're in New York City and you want to hear some great music, be sure to look up those clubs because they're always um, they're always programming some amazing music. I'd love to see them come out of this stronger than ever. All right, if you're looking for some good music these days, people are putting out records left and right. I've been hearing some really great music. Uh, my buddy Kazemde George has just released an album, I Insist, on Greenleaf Music. It's a beautiful record. Kaz and his wife Sammy and a really amazing band uh, putting out some really great music on that one. So be sure to check that out. Kazemde George, I Insist. Uh, we're going to have Kaz on the program pretty soon to talk about that record, so you'll be able to get the insight on what's going on there. All right, without further ado, my guest this week is the great trumpeter Dr. Eddie Henderson. Dr. Henderson was a member of Herbie Hancock's Muandishi Band in the early 70s, recording three iconic fusion records with the group, including Muandishi, Crossings, and Sextant. Throughout the 1970s, Dr. Henderson also recorded a number of classic fusion records under his own name, including Realization, Inside Out, Sunburst, Heritage, and Mahal. He has performed or recorded with Art Blakey, Benny Golson, Pharaoh Sanders, Kenny Barron, Norman Connors, Gary Bartz, Stanley Cowell, and many others, and uh, while well, for years simultaneously practicing medicine as a licensed psychiatrist, which is amazing. Dr. Henderson currently performs as a member of The Cookers, and he has released two albums in the last year or so, including his own album Shuffle and Deal from 2020, and The Cooker's brand new album, Look Out. Dr. Henderson discussed his time with Herbie Hancock and recording his own records in the early 1970s. He also discussed the discipline he learned from competitive figure skating and his choice to return to uh, largely acoustic music in the late 80s. Uh, before we get started, I want to give a shout out to drummer Elena Kahn for making this conversation possible. Thanks, Elena. Uh, this was a really great conversation. Uh, Dr. Henderson's an amazing person, and uh, it was really great to get to sit down with him and pick his brain about his world of music. I learned a lot, and I know you will too. So without further ado, here he is, Dr. Eddie Henderson. All right, well, I think you've had one of the most fascinating careers of anybody that I've talked to. And there's a lot of ground I'd love to cover here, but uh, the place I'd, I'd like to start, I was wondering if we could try to paint a picture of, uh, you were a central figure in the beginnings of what we call fusion music. 
And uh-huh. I'm wondering if we could sort of paint a picture of what that what the the music scene looked like at that time when you were coming up, when you started playing with Herbie Hancock's groups and in recording your own groups. Uh, sure. Sort of where you first heard, um, you know, people blending, let's say, rock and funk rhythms with jazz mm-hmm. and what sure. your first first impressions of that music were. were. Well, let me preface that by saying before I joined Herbie Hancock's group, you know, I was listening to like post-bebop music, the Miles Davis quintets, the John Coltrane music. And and I would say a year or so before I joined Herbie Hancock, Miles Davis's record came out, Bitches Brew. And that and that uh, musical genre sort of set the stage the stage for the M1DC concept uh, of music exploration. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, after listening to that music, that kind of attuned my musical ears to that kind of open-ended, you know, uh, open skies type of improvisation as, as opposed to just being a uh, locked down by reading chord changes, as so to speak. Sure. So now mm-hmm. let me ask you this, at that time, what were some of your some of your earlier influences, and did you focus on, um, in particular, uh, crafting a particular style, a personal style? You certainly have a distinctive absolutely, style. Absolutely. And what absolutely. did you do to go about trying to find your your own voice as a trumpet player? Yeah, I, I remember, of course, my uh, when I first started, my first uh, trumpet teacher uh, influence was was Louis Armstrong. My mother knew him because she was a member of the original Cotton Club and she knew everybody in show business. But at that time, you know, I was like nine, 10 years old. It really didn't have any emotional or psychological impact upon me at that particular time. I just, I was just too, you know, uh, young. Mm-hmm. And, but then to answer your question, in the middle of, if I say in my junior year of high school, I met Miles Davis who stayed at my parents' house for one week and he took me to to hear his group play and at that time in his group was John Coltrane, Cannonball Adderley, Wynton Kelly, Paul Chambers, and Philly Joe Jones. And that experience made an indelible impact and imprint on my musical being. I said, wow, I had no idea uh, you could make those kind of sounds or impact on somebody's being through music. And so I, from that point on, I was on the trail of following the so-called Miles Davis style, as if Miles Davis just dropped out of the sky from nowhere. But everybody is a derivative of the people that came before him. You know, Miles Davis's hero was a gentleman named Freddie Webster, style, style sound and conception and everything. Uh, a De- uh, John Coltrane was a derivative of Dexter Gordon, his predecessor. Clifford Brown was a derivative of his predecessor, Fats Navarro. Uh, uh, and then Clifford Brown was the predecessor of Lee Morgan. But that, 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 that's how the tradition goes. You know, so you have to be aware of where you came from before you were before you can realize where you are at the present time in terms of your style or concept or whatever. Mm-hmm. Sure. So how was it that you first were introduced to Herbie Hancock and what was it to get, what was the, the origination of that group? 
Yeah, well, that's an ironic story because I was following uh, Miles Davis around like a little puppy dog, you know, trying to copy his style. And I remember Miles Davis told me, don't copy him, get my own style. Mm-hmm. You know, that sort of just <laughs> like water off a duck's back. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I still just like the way you play, you know. <laughs> sure, sure. Anyway, I used to always go hear Miles Davis and, and, and Herbie Hancock was in his group. And I was always like uh, uh, everything Miles Davis did, you know, I wanted to do. Miles Davis had, uh, you know, sports cars. So I was in Ferraris and stuff. So I was always admiring sports cars. And so I would always just talk to Herbie Hancock about sports cars when I would go see Miles. We never even talked about music. I don't even think he knew I played. And so uh, one time... This is about 1968 or 69. Herbie Hancock uh, came through San Francisco. And at that time, I was doing my residency in psychiatry. You know, I'd already finished medical school. Uh, And Herbie Hancock needed a, a trumpet player for that one week. So somebody recommended me. And he said, oh, no, he's a doctor. You know, he's not a musician. And so, so I, I, told him, I said, well, just give me one chance. So he didn't know that I knew, had been listening to his music for years. So he had a little skeleton rehearsed. Now, since I, I went to the San Francisco Conservatory of Music, I could read well, blah, 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 musically. And uh, so he had a rehearsal, put the music up there. I knew all the music anyway by, by heart just from listening to the music on record. But he didn't know that. So after the rehearsal, Herbie says to me, oh, you read well. I, I said, oh, thanks. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I was looking at I could read the music, but I wasn't even looking at it. I just knew it. And so um, we played for one week. That's all he hired me for. And everybody was going to go back to New York. And he just says, you know, thanks. You sounded good. And I was disappointed. I, I wanted to be in. I'd never played with people of that caliber before musically. And uh, I, I said, oh, my God. So I told Billy Hart, who was the drummer in the band, you know, Herbie didn't ask me to join the band. He said, well, why don't you just go propose to him, say you want to be in the band? So I went to Herbie says, man, I sure would love to be in this band. And he thought for about three seconds and said, okay, <laughs> just, just like that. <laughs> That's pretty good. You know, yeah. and that whole <laughs> signature of okay changed the whole trajectory and direction of my life. It opened up doors that I never even knew, knew were possible to brought me up to a higher echelon uh, of, of, of being around people who I looked up to all my life as my heroes hmm. because I played with Herbie Hancock. They just took it for granted. You know, I had arrived. So I didn't have to go up through the trenches and auditions and all that stuff. They said, well, you played with Herbie Hancock. Uh, your credentials must be ordered. That included people like Art Blakey, Elvin Jones, McCoy Tyner, Joe Henderson, Jackie McLean, on and on and on. And so that, by Herbie saying, okay, changed my whole life. And that was over a half a century ago. And that that really, you know, just changed everything for me and and allowed me to be at a place where I had already always dreamed of being. Oh, that's amazing. 
Yeah, it was. It's yeah. It's unbelievable. It's just, I'm still living the dream. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. So let me ask you this, because this is a really fascinating part of your trajectory. Is mm-hmm. your parents were in the arts, and you grew up yes. playing trumpet, and then at a certain point, you decided that you'd like to pursue medicine, and you got well. A- well, that, that's a funny story because my stepfather was a doctor. My real father, who was in show business, he was in in a group called the Charioteers which was the number one singing group, black singing group in America, over and above the Ink Spots and Mills Brothers. In fact, the Charioteers uh, did two records and and, um, and had Frank Sinatra as their, uh, 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 as their guest singer with them. And plus they were on the Bing Crosby show five days a week in the early 1940s or mid-1940s in L.A., and uh, so that's, but he unfortunately died when I was nine years old. And my mother remarried this doctor in San Francisco in 1954. And he was the most prominent black doctor in San Francisco. And he was the doctor to all the famous, uh, he loved jazz and he was to all the uh, iconic uh, jazz stars at that time, like Billie Holiday. Uh, Duke Ellington, Miles Davis, Coltrane. You know, he was the doctor to all of them. And so he always advocated that that, that uh, he I should be a doctor so I could make a good living. I really just wanted to play music. That was in my blood since my mother was in show business in the original Cotton Club. And uh, she was a dancer. And her roommate was Billie Holiday. She was a dance partner to Bo Jaggles, Bill Robinson. Her best friend was Lena Horne. You know, and I, I used to see all these iconic people when I was growing up. I just thought they were just ordinary people walking down the street. I had no idea that the stature they held, they held uh, around the world. You know, so to answer your question in terms of me changing my trajectory, it wasn't really that I wanted to change my trajectory, that my but my stepfather and I we did not get along that much, uh, to tell you the truth, and so he wanted me to be a doctor, and he made a statement to my mother that I was not as smart as him, that I I, I wasn't intelligent enough to be a doctor like him. I was going to be a bum on the waterfront. So that just made me mad. I said, oh, yeah, watch. So I went out of my way to go to school and become a doctor and study very diligently to prove him wrong. That was my motivation to become a doctor, not because I was really uh, had a lifelong desire to go into medicine. It was just a challenge. Uh, that he made to me, and he he challenged the wrong person. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like it. Yeah. Was there something about uh, psychiatry in particular that drew you to that field? Pardon me. Was there something about psychiatry in particular that drew you towards that field? Well, that, that that's that's a very interesting question, because you know, after I finished medical school, I had the option of either you know, I I, I went to medical school and finished. Uh, uh, over a challenge that I couldn't do it, right? Yeah. <laughs> I was still playing music the whole time going through it. That's how I put myself through medical school. Uh, and I really, as more I, 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 
I was in, in medical school, the more I, my heart was drawn towards music, to tell you the truth, hmm. even though I, I finished medical school. So at the end of medical school, I had a choice of opening up a practice or going to a residency, right? And so if I went into surgery, gynecology, pediatrics, pathology, all the different you know specialties, that would have been, and each one of those specialties, you had to be on call every other night for four years. I said, oh my God. But then I saw psychiatry, the on-call schedule was on call overnight once every 45 days. I said, aha, that gives me more time to play music. So that's why I went into psychiatry. Sure. That's fascinating. (laughs) In a roundabout Uh, way. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, There may be some people uh, listening to this who are not aware of the inherent challenges of being a trumpet player, but that is not an easy instrument. Oh, Uh, I think that playing the trumpet is one of the most difficult instruments because if you play the drums, you have a stick, you hit the drum, the drum sounds like a drum. Play the piano, you push the key down, the piano sounds like a piano. Uh, a saxophone, you blow the, the mouthpiece, the reed vibrates. That's what makes the sound. But with the trumpet, <laughs> buzzing your lips into a steel mouthpiece, your lips makes it sound. So flesh against steel, which is going <laughs> to give the, the quicker. Of course, the flesh, <laughs> your lips get cut, your lips hurt you know and so and then plus it's it's just just a, a challenging instrument over and above uh uh the trumpet i would say trombone also are the most difficult uh, of the wind instruments to play sure so it must yeah. have taken a, it must have, you must have had a lot of discipline to be able to finish not only a medical degree but at the same time right. also be playing trumpet on that high level yes you know people ask but what is another aspect of my life that that's very interesting when you mentioned the word discipline is because from the, at the age of 14, when I first moved to San Francisco, when my mother remarried, it was during the summer, I had no friends. So my parents took me to see the ice follies uh, in, uh, in San Francisco. And it's the first time I ever seen figure skating. And I was just enthralled by the sound of the blades going over the ice. And one of the stars that seemed to do these axle jumps, double axle, and the spinning, that intrigued me. And so uh, even before I started high school, I, uh, he he gave, gave lessons during that summer, and he was one of my first teachers. And I became fanatical about skating, and I became the first black person on this planet to ever compete in uh, figure skating championships. And wow. I, I competed in the, 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 the Pacifico championships. But the ironic thing is that I was, since I was the first black person to compete in those championships, it was sort of like Jackie Robinson in basketball. I ran into so much racial prejudice. Mm. Like in San Francisco, such a liberal city, they would not let me join the figure skating club because I was black. Wow. So, so again, that just made me mad. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I went out of my way. I said, well, they won't let me in the club. I'm going to be better than them. 
you know? <laughs> but, but, but ironically, um, right after my first year of college, I joined the Air Force and I was still skating. I went and moved to Denver, Colorado, when, where they had a base there. And the, the Denver Figure Skating Club, with open arms, wanted me to represent them in their competitions. So I trained in Colorado Springs with the Olympic team, and I really became fanatic. I thought that was going to be my calling in life from age 14 to 21. I was on the ice every morning during high school, 5.30 in the morning, with just competitors, not public sessions. And during, during the summers, I was on the ice from, say, 5.30 in the morning until 10 o'clock at night. You know, all those double axles and triple south out, flank hamels and stuff that you see. I was sure. doing that in high school. Uh, wow. Because, you know, my dream was I wanted to be uh, in the ice follies. And then after I finished medical school and I was doing all these uh, uh, double act, oh, I, I wanted to get a job with the ice pilot, but all they let me do was scrape the ice on the intermission because I was black and they wouldn't allow me backstage with, 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 with the ice folly at girl because I was black, you know? Wow. And, yeah. and, and so then finally, when I finished medical school, I went to see the ice filers and visit my teacher. My first teacher was still the star, a gentleman named Richard Dwyer, wonderful skater. And by this time they had a token black skater in the ice follies. Now check this out. This is in 1968. Uh, forget his name, but anyway, the ice, the mentality of the show. Then he's dressed up in a red, white, and blue Uncle Sam Sam costume with a big Uncle Sam hat, skating to Old Man River. Hmm. You know, I, I said I wanted to be a part of that. Sure. <laughs> But speaking of the ice skating, Miles Davis, uh, one time my parents brought him to see one of my competitions. And uh, with his sense of humor, I went to see him that night at the club. And he stuck poking fun at me in front of the musicians. And in his voice, he says, hey, Eddie, where's your skating skirt? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. stuff. So, so I say all this to say you mentioned the thing about discipline, about being a doctor, being a musician. I think there are three aspects of discipline in my life. Uh, of course, figure skating takes discipline, hours and hours of practice, you know, because when you're doing those double and, and triple jumps, you have to be, have concentration and discipline or else you're going to be upside down and land on your head. Right. It's discipline at an early age from when you're studying music, because music teaches you symmetry and balance, teaches you math at three, four time, five, four time, four, four time. And the study of medicine discipline, you have to study accumulative knowledge every day. You can't cram it. Right. So, so, so my answer to people, well, how did you do all these three major things? I think that when you learn discipline at an early age, uh, it's priceless because it's hard to learn discipline when you get older because there's so many more life distractions interfering. So, uh, so, so I was very lucky. I had the, the, the figure skating, the music starting at nine years old. And, and, and so 
after that discipline at an early age, medical school was a, a, a piece of a walk across the park. <laughs> <laughs> While other people were struggling, studying, sweating bullets to, to, to get through medical school. It was a piece of cake. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> because I knew how to study. You know, study habits, you know, organization. There's a time to go to school. There's a time to practice your figure skating. There's a prime time to study after school. And then there's a time to go out at night. Because I would go out every every night. I, I never missed a class in my life. Uh, but I would go out every night after school and after studying and playing music. And all the other medical students said, ooh, you're going to flunk out. You're going to jazz club. But I went to school every day. I wouldn't see these guys for two and three months. They'd be out partying. I never went to a party in college or medical school. I was so disciplined, figure skating early in the morning, always going to class, come right home from class, study, and then every night going out trying to execute, learning how to play quote-unquote jazz. Sure. So that kept me, kept my, my mind and my schedule busy. And these other guys who said, I was going to flunk out, they flunked out. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't go to class. Wow, that's amazing. That's, that's, yeah. I think that's really important, that idea that if you start off with that kind of regimented discipline, that that carries on with you for the rest, yeah, of, your for life. The rest of your life. For the sure. rest of your life. Yeah. <laughs> you have to start that at an early age where it becomes second nature to your being. Mm -hmm. You just can't acquire it later because you got you get you got to pay the rent, you got to get the car fixed, you got to go buy growth. You know, <laughs> you sure. can't acquire discipline later. Yeah. So now here we are, you know, many decades later, and you're you're still you've been playing trumpet on at, you know such a high level for this amount of time. Are there certain things that you do? Do you have a daily routine that you maintain that? that kind of discipline or a, or a particular schedule that allows you to maintain, you know, on the trumpet? Well, well, you know, when I was younger, I used to physically practice the trumpet, you know, hours and hours a day. I don't practice as much as I used to physically, you know, technically, you know, move my fingers and going through the exercise. But what I do is buzz. I'm always thinking about it mentally, you know, and I think that mental activity going over the scales in my head. If I'm driving down the street, I'm thinking about going through the, the scales in every key, you know. Uh, but but all, always, even when I'm watching TV, presently, I have the mouthpiece <laughs> buzzing my lips just to keep the muscles in, in tune. Mm -hmm. You know, so because just like a, a bodybuilder, if he's not doing at least the isometrics, you know, the, the muscles get flaccid. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing that, like I said before, that makes the sound in the trumpet <laughs> buzzing in your lips. So you have to keep these muscles around here toned. And, and just buzzing that mouthpiece keeps, it's called chops. You know, keep your chops up. You know, so even if I'm not actively playing, it takes me a day or two if I have a gig and then I get right back to where I, I left off. Sure. All right. Yeah. So we'll go. We'll go back in time for a minute. I want to cover some more of the okay. uh, sort of the beginnings of you know when you were playing with uh, Herbie and some of your albums sure. in the seventies. Um, yeah. What was the well? First of all, so you were influenced by Miles Davis and the electric music that he was making, and then shortly thereafter, you're right in the middle of all of this, playing this music. 
What was right. the what was the response? Did you get what was the response that you got from let's say the jazz audience or the public at large around that time? Uh, you know, everybody switching to playing electric instruments and some of the yeah. some of the effects that yeah. were being used, and then yeah. some of those rhythms yeah. that you were then applying yeah. to that music. Well, let me backtrack a little bit. Sure. When I first became enthralled with Miles Davis, I was trying to copy his uh, musical genre that he was playing in at that time. This was like in the early '60s to late sixties where he's playing tunes like if I were a bell green dolphin street and, you know, standard tunes. And then near the end of the sixties, when he started changing to the electric and then when I, but I was always trying to play bebop or post bebop up to the time I joined Herbie. Even when I uh, first joined Herbie, it was just acoustic instruments. There was no only person swinging electric was Herbie mm-hmm. on electric piano. But then on my third album, uh, it was called Sunburst. Mm-hmm. The day before the album, uh, the producer, well, he hired all, all these sort of, so, so, so to speak, fusion musicians like Alphonse Johnson on bass, who was with Weather Report, George Duke, uh, fantastic keyboardist, Harvey Mason, uh, the drummer who was on Herbie's original Headhunters, he hired those musicians. I knew them, but I'd never played with them. And then the producer bought, uh, uh, through the record company budget, got me a, a wah-wah pedal, uh, echoplex, and a phase shifter. Mm-hmm. I had not been playing those until the day before the record. Wow. <laughs> so when I got to... I was like a little kid in a candy store. Wow, wow, wow. And by beginner's luck, it all hooked up with the rhythm track. It sounded like I knew I, what I was doing. It was total beginner's luck. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and then after a while, I got beginning to, you know, to really dig the echoplex with the big you know, wide, you know, cosmic sound. And I I would bring my echoplex to jam sessions, you know, playing bebop and thinking to myself, oh, Eddie, you sure have a big sound to myself, you know. <laughs> and accidentally somebody knocked the plug out of the wall. <laughs> my sound cut off. I said, oh, shit. So I gave all my electrical equipment away. I said, I'm getting my, my own sound back again. Oh, sure. Because <laughs> you felt like it was a it was like a crutch or something you were relying yeah, on. Yeah, that. because I was kind of leaning on it, you know, mm-hmm. sure. to make an artificial sound. It sounded great, but but uh, only once after that, after I started to get my own, own uh, you know, personal sound together, then that's icing on the cake. Sure. But, but right. while I was doing it, I, I loved it. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it certainly adds such a texture to that music. I mean, some oh, in particular, all that. And but I was going to ask you if if it was um, if you're controlling all that as you go, the effects were under your control. You're doing it live in the studio. What what were yeah. those recording sessions like? In particular, Sunburst, or perhaps like um, you know some of those recordings that you were doing in the in the early '70s under your name. What, what were the recording oh, sessions yeah. like? Well, well, you know, nowadays recording uh, sessions, you have like maybe to do a whole album, six hours. Sure. In those days, the albums that I mentioned, we recorded 12 hours a day, seven days a week for a month. Whoa. 
<laughs> big budgets, $100,000, you know, which is unheard of for the quote-unquote jazz record. Uh, they call it under the jazz canopy at that time. Uh-huh. So for the first week, 12 hours a day, seven days a week, we did just the basic tracks. The second week, 12 hours a day, seven days a week, we did uh, um, the editing. Mm-hmm. That's the second week. The third week, 12 hours a day, seven days a week, we did the overdubbing, spicing and overdubbing during the solos, you know, piecing them together. So it sounds so so it sounded seamless. And the fourth week, seven days a week, 12 hours a day, uh, uh doing the mixing. So a month it took to do those regs. So when it came out, Sounded fantastic. I would hope so. Sure. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and even though a, a lot of those solos, it, it sounds like like, like the, it just rolled off my tongue. Sometimes it would take 12 hours for me to do a solo uh, the, the, uh, of 32 bars, you know. Wow, yeah. Bar at a time and splice it together where it sounded like it was seamless. But even though that, that was like... A punk way of doing it. After listening to it <laughs> in retrospect, it became incorporated in my style. So it was like a learn, a painful learning experience, so to speak, hmm, for myself. Sure. And then that, that became part of the way I started playing. Sure. So now, were, yeah. were the compositions written sort of as a part of the recording process, or did you come in with the compositions in advance? Uh, the compositions. The compositions that I that I would write, because I'm not a composer, so to speak, uh, would just like sketches and let and let the, the, the band, you know, fill in the gaps. You know, I, I just write, you know, like landscapes, you know, areas of sound and let everybody contribute their own personal thing in there. Because as the, the percussion player in a uh, famous saying, he said, uh, uh, a collective portrait far uh, supersedes any self-portrait mm-hmm. rather than me writing in all the parts that's just my narrow way of looking at things but when everybody gives a contribution the music becomes much more vast sure so you're coming mm-hmm. in with sort of the foundation the, the skeleton of it yeah. and then you just allowed everybody to bring their own personality Absolutely. to that music and yeah it was almost like a conversation rather than me write everybody's part then i think that narrows the whole musical scope of things mm-hmm. sure Wow, that's fascinating. And it's interesting, too, because that's such a different approach, I would think. Um, The approach of spending, let's say, that amount of time on the recording and then on the splicing and the editing and the mixing and everything like that, that seems to be a departure from the way that you'd create, let's say, a jazz record in 19... Exactly. It's not the creative process. It's almost like going to the lab and and putting Frankenstein together, you know, rather than, you know, the, the creator making it <laughs> right yeah 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 but it's fascinating because listening to you know realization and all this stuff it is it is very cohesive it's all you know it oh, yeah. you wouldn't yeah, know yeah. In, in a million years that's that it was. just the way it was there was no overdubbing of solos there was no splicing what what you heard on the the the, the, the album realization and inside out mm-hmm. that's the way it was that's the way we play and and i'm glad you mentioned those two albums because those two albums were if you if you notice were really the most part the personnel on the m1 dc 
band. Sure. Mm-hmm. Right? And those two albums were the unadulterated way the M1 DC band sounded, as opposed to Herbie Hancock, whose Swahili name is M1 DC, on his records. There were uh, the record company wanted those albums to be more or less more commercially appealing, mm-hmm. a little more watered down for the general public. But those two albums, uh, uh, the guys in the band were gracious enough to allow me to put it on my name. You know, that's the way the M1 DC man really sounded. Mm, okay, so those two records in particular, you did more of a. It was it was less of the overdub and more of the. Oh, absolutely. Just playing. Absolutely. You just played it. At- Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, what you heard is the way way it was. Mm-hmm. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. Okay, but then that. Yeah. So then the. So let's say like Sextant or something like that. that when you were now, putting out with her, that was more of the way that you described Sunburst, where it's going to be more of. Um, let's say the. It was more of the overdubs and more of the editing and things of that nature. Uh, Sextant. Let me think. Sextant. Something. The the sewing. I. I I don't remember ever overdubbing on, 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 I know Herbie, a lot of his synthesizing stuff, you know, the, the layer upon layers and stuff, mm-hmm. they, 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 they came back and overdubbed that at a later date. But for the most part, all the soloing uh, that the horns would do was just the way it was on, on the actual date. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. And I, I never remember coming in overdubbing a solo on Sexton, you know. Sure. So that was more in line with sort of the older approach, but it was a little yeah, bit more exactly. over, like the synthesizers and things. Yeah, absolutely. With Pat Gleason and stuff on the synthesizer at Herbie Overlane, you know, and then the engineer tweaking all, uh, you know, like doing some special effects on Billy Hart's cymbals and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it must have been fascinating to hear a lot of that stuff because that was really the cutting edge of some of those, the synthesizers well, and the technology and everything. It really was. It really was. That that band was really ahead of its time. Sure. Yeah. With with that group and your own groups, to what degree, whatever degree you were playing, you know, regularly touring or playing live, were you playing rock clubs or were you playing jazz clubs? Or what was the environment of playing live? Uh, it was more or less jazz clubs, mm-hmm. I would say. Yeah. At that time, it really hadn't crossed over to the big venues, the rock venues uh, that, that, that are available nowadays. Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. And then this whole time. So if you spent, let's say you spent a month recording one of your albums and you got to be there for 12 hours a day, seven days a week. Did you put for, up for a month? I didn't see the sun. <laughs> <laughs> That's something else. Wow. So you would have had to put your medical practice on hold for that amount of time. Absolutely. And, and, and it was really nice. It wasn't, you know, as you see my medical practice, when I first started practicing medicine, which I did for 11 years, I had my license, but, but I was just playing music. I never even thought about practicing medicine you know then one day you know i said wait wait a minute i have a license so i went to this guy dr jackson in san francisco and told him i said well you know dr jackson i'm a doctor and have a license too but i have to tell you that i'm really into music so if i get a tour i have to go so he just laughed and said well lad uh just let me come and beat a bongo on your tour and he hired me and seven, you know, five days a week at, at full salary. And even when I'd get tours, six or seven weeks, tours, 
wasn't even be, wouldn't even be there. He would pay me when I wasn't even there. Wow! And so, I, I, what an ideal job! And 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 I only worked like four five hours a day, and sometimes I'd be going seven weeks on tour, and he still get I'd still get paid. Wow. So I had my cake and ate it. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing, huh? That's, it is amazing being able to juggle those two careers. It's not like it's a yeah. difficult prospect but yeah. the fact that you had that means that yeah it gave you a certain and degree the, of support and a little bit of i would imagine yeah. it gave you a little bit of peace of mind and being able to but, play the but, music. but it wasn't like when uh, you see on tv doc, ben casey you know the doctor you know on tv sure. it wasn't that traditional doctor's office i would always bring my my horn to the gig i mean to the gig <laughs> to the doctor's office in uh-huh. between in between patients i'd be in my back office practicing the trumpet <laughs> And, and and it was in the Haight-Ashbury district in San Francisco. So I knew all the street people. And so sometimes, uh, you know, friends of mine, they'd come in, be waiting in the doctor's office to see me. So the nurse would say, oh, do you, do you want to see Dr. Henderson? They say, oh, no, I hear him practicing. I don't want to disturb him. He would be mad. He's got a gig tonight. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, it was different. So, so I... I you know, thinking back, you know, I, I must have a rabbit's foot in my back pocket sure. <laughs> my whole life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. That's yeah. something else for sure. Uh, so you played, so in your records throughout the 70s, you were dealing with a lot of those, a lot of funk rhythms and a lot of rock rhythms, and things exactly. of that nature, the electric instruments. And then, right. you know, in the last since probably, I guess it would be, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but since at least the late 80s, you've been playing largely acoustic music. Uh, playing with an acoustic group and, you know. Right. And that was a conscious choice. I was going to ask if it was a conscious choice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) I heard that coming around the corner. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Yeah, the reason I say it's a conscious choice because, as I said, when I joined Herbie, I was just beginning to learn how to play the vocabulary of bebop, post-bebop. Then when I joined Herbie, it was more or less like open skies. Mm -hmm. You know, and I always felt that my bebop playing was inadequate, uh, uh, so to speak, you know, playing changes. And so after that ended and then uh, after practicing medicine and then moving back to New York, I sort of realized that that I had to more or less go back and clean up uh, some of my shortcomings musically. That's why I made a conscious choice to go back and clean it and then change my repertoire and, 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 and increase my vocabulary in other areas that I was lacking. Mm-hmm. That's why when you listen to the records from the late eighties on up to the present, you, you see, I, I changed from the electronics to wah-wahs and stuff to more acoustic and then playing uh, a different vocabulary in terms of repertoire. Sure. What did you do when you realized that you wanted to try to, let's say, enhance your bebop playing or build that up or or clean it up? What, what was the process involved in doing that? Well, I'm glad you asked that. It's a good question. Uh, by moving to New York, you know, it gave me because prior to that, I was living in San Francisco. What good musician. But after moving to New York, such a wealth of different styles and music and such a vast 
uh, a multitude uh, of players with with, with different uh, levels of uh, of um, efficiency uh, that allowed, you know, I would just go out and listen to different people and take mental notes and sitting in with it, asking questions, you know, and going, I'd hear something, somebody would play and go home and practice it. Mm-hmm. And then all, you know, so sort of like, like piecemeal put things together in my mind's eye. And then I said, Oh, wow. That's how you do that. You know, <laughs> sure. step by step. And then that was the problem. Cause you know, in the old days, like when Charlie Parker and Miles and stuff were coming up, they didn't have all these schools like they do nowadays, like New England Conservatory, Juilliard, the new school and all that stuff. They, 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 just like I was just saying, people would go out and, and compare notes between musicians, you know, mm-hmm. that's more or less was advantageous to me by moving to New York and going out and meeting music, new musical friends and just gathering more musical information uh, to incorporate into my musical being. And that sort of helped me grow musically and then also helped to kind of formulate and evolve my own musical style. Sure. Is that what made you want to move back to New York? Well, the reason I moved back to New York because I was doing very well in San Francisco, you know, juggling uh, the doctor's thing, and which allowed me to tour and playing almost every night there because the Keystone Corner was there. And uh, when people like Art Blakey, McCoy, Tyner, Elvin Jones, Roy Hayes would come through town, uh, Joe Henderson, they'd all hire me. So I didn't have to move to New York. So right at the time when I moved to New York, the Keystone just closed. Uh, the, the, they just closed down for financial reasons, and San Francisco dried up. And then also at the same time, my mother got sick in New York and called me and asked, if, "Could I come there and help her?" So, so I quit the doctor's office, and I have not practiced medicine since then, and moved to, to help you know mommy. Sure. <laughs> and 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 everything just as soon as I moved to New York, everybody knew me. And so things just took off, and and I, you know, started working immediately, and hmm. and and hasn't stopped since then. Wow, that's something else. So so since then, you've only, you've been full time musician, and, full time, yeah, and professor. I just as well. started teaching also. Okay. As, uh, who was it? First Long Island University called me. Uh, Pete Yellen, uh, the alto player, who unfortunately passed a few years back. He asked me, would I like to be, I'd never taught before. I said, okay, sure. And then all of a sudden the new school asked me to start teaching there. I said, okay, why not? And then I never applied for for, the Juilliard to teach. Juilliard called me and said, would I like to be a teacher at Juilliard? I said, why not? (laughs) And then that lasted for about five years, five, six years. And then presently, I've been teaching at Oberlin uh, College uh, in Ohio for the last eight years, and I'm the only uh, trumpet teacher in the jazz department, and that and that's really my staple diet at present in terms of, you know, I, I just travel there once a week, usually go on Tuesday morning and come back to New York on, on Wednesday. And so uh, by that being my staple income, it allows me to pick and choose the gigs uh, uh, that I want to do. 
Sure. And that gives you a little freedom to be able to play the music that you want to play. Without... Exactly. Yes. Yes. I don't, I don't have to play weddings and stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I know that world very well. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, what was the origin of the cookers? Origin of the cookers is I, I remember when I was in um, medical school, uh, the first record, The Night of the Cookers, I don't know if you're familiar with that, mm -hmm, with Freddie sure. Hubbard and Lee Morgan. Yep. Well, this is when I was chasing Freddie Hubbard and, and then Lee Morgan around like a little puppy, <laughs> you know, going to that. Because in medical school, every I was in Washington, D.C., every Saturday, every weekend, I would drive up to New York. On Saturday, I'd be at Freddie Hubbard's house watching him practice. Every Sunday, I would be at Lee Morgan's house wow. watching and, and playing duets with him and going around club hopping with them. They'd allow me to sit in, pat me. And my nice puppy. You know, <laughs> you know? So that was the so so the night of the cookers was the origin of the cookers. That music, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and 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 the group present group, the cookers is a derivative of that first night at the La Marshall Club in Brooklyn. It was actually two nights. I picked Freddie Hubbard up both nights, took him to the gig, and took him back home. You know, so, so it's a wonder I finished medical school because I was really, you know, on the trail of just wanting to be a musician. But I could not quit because of the vow, <laughs> the, the bet I had with myself, <laughs> with my stepfather. All <laughs> sure, right. So I had to finish. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that something else? Out of spite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. What did you learn from Freddie Hubbard and Lee Morgan getting to? Getting to hang oh, with them well, and well, you know, practice. As we talked about before, my first hero, music hero, was Miles Davis, trying to emulate him. Mm -hmm. And and then um, I remember one time Miles Davis, I used to ask Miles, how how did he play a ballad so pretty? And he, he told me by him listening to singers, the way they phrased. Mm -hmm. And then I was impressed by that. That's so how I would always try to play in the, in the style of Miles Davis. And, and then I remember one time, <laughs> um, this one, I was still in college. Miles Davis was staying at my parents' house and my parents said, well, look, Eddie, we're paying for all these lessons for you at the, at the San Francisco Conservatory in high school, play for Miles. So I'd been listening to Miles's records. So by ear, I put on sketches of Spain. Miles is in the living room listening to play with his record. I had a lucky day. I played, I didn't miss a note, both sides of the record. And so Miles, so I ran up to Miles and said, Well, how'd you like that, Miles? He smiled and looked at me and said, You sound good, but that's me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And, and then so then the next time he came to town and he walks in the door, he rings the bell. I open the door, he looks at me. The first thing he said, are you still trying to sound like me, Eddie? But in the interim before that, uh, the, year, the year before that, I found I had, my stepfather uh, informed me that Miles Davis's hero when he was growing up was Freddie Webster. Miles tried to imitate Freddie. Freddie Webster's style, sound, concept, everything. So when Miles asked me, am I still trying to sound like him? I said, uh, uh, I said, you mean Freddie Webster? <laughs> uh. So Miles smiled at me and said, 
everybody's a thief. He said, <laughs> I just made a short-term loan. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my logo at that particular time. So to answer your question, you asked me about Lee Morgan and Freddie Hubbard. Well, a- a- after my first hero, Miles Davis, kind of didn't never wane, you know, that's still part of my musical being. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started, you know, hearing Freddie's style, Lee's style, and that, you know, hit a nerve in my musical being. I started trying to play like them. And then also Book a Little. I, mm. I love the way he played, too. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, they're all from that same generation. And I started, I started trying to play like Lee, started to play like Freddie, started to play like uh, 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 Booker, tried to play like Miles, tried to play like Clifford Brown. So nowadays people come up to me and said, and, and, and I would like steal things, phrases from each one of those people that I admired, and it became part of my musical sound or projection. So nowadays people come to me and say, oh, Eddie, uh, I like your style. Then I say, my style? No, that's the shit I've stolen from other people. <laughs> yeah. You know? Sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you, Miles has a recu- reputation, of course, of being kind of difficult. But it sounds like he was very kind to you, and he, he really taught you well, a lot. Well, he had, he had that other difficult and nasty side, too, now. <laughs> sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. He, he he was a unique individual, you know. He 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 could be nice and as sweet as as, as as honey, and two seconds later he can make a U turn on the freeway and be a total you know nasty. Sure. You know. Sure. So I just take that with a grain of salt. So I just said, well, look, I like the way you play, but f you. Sure. As I got older, I would stand up for myself uh-huh. a little more. Yeah. Sure. Oh, that's tough. That's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Because I used to ask Jimmy Cobb. Because one time I I used to see Miles when Jimmy Cobb was in his band, the drummer, you know. Mm-hmm. And Miles had insulted him, you know, and blah, blah, blah. I saw Miles David punch Coltrane in the stomach, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I asked him, I said, why did you take, take all that stuff from Miles Davis? Jimmy just said, well. I like the way he played. <laughs> That's uh, all. Yeah, I like sure. the way he played, but a lot, a lot of his personality I didn't like. You know? Sure. Wow, that's something else. Yeah. Yeah. So you're still you're still recording albums now. You 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 put out a couple albums in the last couple of years, um, Shuffle and Deal and Be Cool. When you right. put together an album, what are you looking for in terms of the music that you're going to play on those albums? Is that something that you just music you've been working on? Is it music? Yeah. Yeah. I more or less look look for an eclectic uh, approach, you know, uh, compositions from everybody or as many people as I can get. Like I said before, uh, um, uh, the the wider the scope of of, uh, compositions I get, the wider the scope of the music, rather than me writing just my limited uh, idea or or concept. Mm. So, so... And the, uh, use my wife, which is a great, Natsuko Henderson, great composer, you know, uh, the last three or four albums, she always has a composition on there. My daughter also, who is the head of the music department at Oakland High School of the Performing Arts, uh, the last few albums, she's 
written a composition. And I always ask everybody on the day to submit a composition. And, and then once I get all the, the, those inputs, then I see which compositions will make a cohesive concept. I, I just don't want a shotgun approach. I want all the compositions to, to sort of be a concept for that particular album. Sure. Do you so then? Do you choose the the pieces that you're going to put on the album, or do you record them first and then decide? Okay, these will work. This is going to make a more cohesive sounding. Album. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, and and always, you know, rather than just have, say they have a, uh, uh, an album, uh, everything burning, you know, burning, burning, burning. No, that's lopsided. I want to have you know tension and release, so the, mm -hmm. so the album breathes. Sure. I want to have some beautiful ballads. Some I always want to get a ballad in there that everybody, most people have not heard. You know, some from from long time ago. Some beautiful ballads. So, oh wow, I remember that from a long time ago. And put my interpretation on it. You know, I like to have different tempos in there. Also, you know, some three, four, maybe a tango. You know, Mayor Waltz, you know, so so the album has much more wider musical scope than just everything uh, jazz out, burning, burning. No, it's not about that. You sure, know, sure. In, in terms of the way I looked at things. Mm -hmm. So how long have you been playing with the, this iteration of the Cookers? I've been in that band now for about 16, 17 years. And, and 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 everybody in that band is a leader in their own right, mm -hmm. have their own mm -hmm. bands, and 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 it's more than a notion to have, you know, four horns and a rhythm section, to pull everybody's itinerary together to play allegiance to when we get tours, to to to, to have that as the first priority, and well, if they get other concerts, to to subordinate that that. The, those other concerts and play and pledge allegiance to the cookers. So it's really because not many bands have been together that long, you know, sure. of journeyman musicians. No doubt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And people who are all yeah. leading their own groups. So it's got to be tricky to keep that to keep that oh, yeah. together for yeah. that reason. But, but, but it's certainly worthwhile. You know, sure. So. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. Um, those records are amazing. They sound great. It's beautiful. Oh, beautiful arrangement. The playing is all amazing. Oh, thank you, my friend. And is that the same? So, is that a is that a continuation from what you were talking about uh, hanging out with Freddie Hubbard and Lee Morgan in that that yeah. particular concert? That's a continuation of that. Same. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that, that that was the original prototype, the Night of the Cookers, right? And that kind of concept of getting together with powerful musicians playing creatively, you know, every night. Because every night, you know, success. He'd come to the gate. Somebody's gonna rise the occasion and, and surprise you, and and it's amazing when everybody's you know creative juices are flowing at once. It's it's uh, you know it's astounding. Sure, that's amazing. Yeah. All right, I often ask this, and I think I think you're gonna have some insight on this. But I wonder okay. if you have any advice for young musicians who are coming up into the music world or ways that they can either find their own artistic voice or ways that they can approach their career in music or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's really a wide open question. You know, because nowadays uh, I see all these younger musicians going to different schools, mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, jazz schools, jazz institutions. And it kind of um, 
uh, not bothers me. I'm concerned of, you know, they spend all these years of studying, studying, studying. In terms of after they graduate, the outlet for them to make a living uh, concerns me, you know, in terms of mm -hmm. the way the world is nowadays, uh, 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 the opportunities and venues for them to make a living uh, uh, because, you know, uh, concert promoters, uh, 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 clubs, they don't want to hire you unless you have a name you know, tours and stuff. You're not going to get a European tour just coming out of school, no records and stuff. So, And a lot of the students ask me, well, what should I do? And I'm kind of dumbfounded to give them a definite answer. I said, well, so I always ask them, are you in, uh, I know all my students at Oberlin, I said, why uh, do you like jazz? Why are you into jazz? Well, I like the way it makes me feel. That's a perfect answer. That's a good answer. Now, I said, now, are you in this field of music for fame and fortune or because of the love of the art form? There's nothing against fame and fortune. I have nothing against that. Great if you get it. But if you if that's your motivation, then if you don't get it, you're in for an acute psychotic depression. <laughs> you know, but sure. but but if you're in it for the love of the art form itself, that's priceless. You can't buy that. Well, whether you become famous or make a million dollars is secondary. So I always advise young musicians, uh, you know, make sure that you're going into this endeavor because of the love of the art form itself. It's not guaranteed that you're become, gonna become famous. It's not gonna guaranteed that you're be, gonna become rich. You might, you might not. But the main uh, uh, primary goal, I think, uh, to, 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 to enrich your soul is for the love of the art form itself. Mm. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Yeah. So what's next for you? Do you have anything on the, uh, that you're trying, a new record that you're trying to put together or what do you see? Well, in your no, the, the cookers future? just did one that's, I think it's, it's come out just recently mm -hmm. or come in, uh, maybe in the last week it already came out. But for, for me personally, I'm supposed to do another record for smoke records within the next three months or so. Uh, you know, I have some, some ideas yet. I always wait till a couple of months beforehand before I, I write something. I'm asked my wife to write something. I'm gonna ask my daughter again, <laughs> and, and 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 just put out some feelers. And and I've been thinking about it. You know, I haven't uh, congealed the concept yet, uh, but it's probably a continuation. Uh, you know, uh, of, of, it's not going to be any drastic changes, I don't think. A lot of people, even the, the record company, Smoke Records, has alluded, well, Eddie, why don't you do another electronic record like you did on Sunbird? That's crossed my mind, you know, too. I might incorporate that with some of the stuff I've been doing and add some some phase shifter or something just for a different sound, you know. But, but whatever, it's going to be... A, something new something different sure great well, i'll be looking forward to hearing it whenever it comes out yeah me too <laughs> great 
Yeah. All right. Well, Dr. Henderson, this has been really great. I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down with me and, and give some that of your insights. Uh, this has been fun. All right. Great. Thank well, you. thank you very much. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you, too. Look forward to next time. All right, gang. Well, thank you once again for joining me for a, an exciting and insightful and enlightening episode of Jazztopia. Huge thanks to Dr. Eddie Henderson for joining me on the show this week. It was really amazing to get to talk to him and to learn a little bit about the world of music that he came up in and his, his insight into the music and get some of his advice. And uh, it was really amazing. All right, well, if you'd like to stay up to date with the program, you can find us on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash jazztopiapodcast. You can also find us on Facebook. Uh, we got a new Instagram page, jazz.topia. And uh, you can also follow me, Bobby Spellman, on Instagram at, at Bob Spellman or on Facebook or any of the other places. Uh, we also have a YouTube page now where we're going to be putting up all of the interviews in video format. So you can... Be sure to go over there and check out our YouTube page and uh, follow us there for some new shows coming out. We've got some new shows coming up. I'm excited. Excited. We're going to have some fun. All right. And if you'd like to check out some new music coming out, uh, you can you can check out Dr. Eddie Henderson's newer record from 2020, uh, Shuffle and Deal, as well as the brand new Cookers record, Look Out. And uh, be sure to purchase the albums and support the artists, all right? That's the best way you can support the artists, to buy a copy of the album. It always is a big help. All right, gang. Thanks again for joining me. Stick around next week, and uh, we'll have some more great conversations with musicians in the world of jazz and improvisation. All right. Take care, gang. See ya.